Hi, I'm David Shipler. And I'm Daniels Wordling. Two reporters, start now. Hi, Dave. Hi, Danny. How you doing? Congressman. Hello. Hey there. Hi, I'm David. I'm David Shipler in the red shirt. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you. Hey, Bob. Hello. Nice How are you then? Great, great. Thanks. We have an amazing guest today. He used to be a right-wing Republican congressman. I think a lot of people would have described him that way. But since then, he's come to a place where he denounces Donald Trump. He says many Republicans in Congress have lost their souls. And he's traveling around the country trying to convince Republicans that climate change is a huge threat to them and to the whole planet. Dave, why don't you continue the introduction? Okay. The United States seems to be in a very fragile place right now with a radicalized Republican Party. Uh, our guest today served six terms in Congress as a conservative Republican. In fact, he represented one of the most conservative districts in South Carolina. Which pretty well means that it's one of the most conservative in America, right, Bob? I think so. The NRA, the National Rifle Association, loved you, right? The Christian Coalition loved you, or at least really, really liked you. And, and Bob Inglis, we love that you're joining us on Two Reporters. So an official welcome. Well, thank you. So we're going to hear a lot about your past and what brought you to this moment. But, but first, I have a quick question for you. Do you remember the exact moment where you were and how you reacted emotionally when you realized that Joe Biden had defeated Donald Trump for president? Um, where was I? Let's see. Um, we've been waiting, 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 all of us in America and the whole world, right? Um, and so, uh, oh, yes, I do remember. I was using the leaf blower in the driveway, <laughs> and uh, suddenly my phone started going off in my ears. In other words, uh, notifications coming in. And the the first one I opened was from our daughter who lives in Asheville, North Carolina, and she said, uh, he's won. And then the next text from her says something about it. The way we found out is people were out uh, suddenly out in the streets carrying on. And they thought it was some kind of disturbance for a while. But then they realized, oh, no, these people are out celebrating. <laughs> so, And what about you? Yes, I went looking for my wife, who was home at the time. And I, I'm, I'm trying to remember whether any, our youngest daughter might have been around somewhere on our farmette at the time. So we were all seeking each other out to uh, give hugs and celebrate. Um, the, the thing is, I, I, uh, I, I consider myself a Republican, and uh, uh, you know, I think the most loyal thing to the party was actually uh, getting rid of Donald Trump, and certainly the most loyal thing to the country. Wow. So it was, it was a moment of celebration for us, for sure. And, um, Bob, I hope you don't mind. Uh, we're going to summarize your early years. We're going to whip right through them. Um, your father ran as a Republican for local office in South Carolina back in the, what, 1960s? Is that right? Yeah, school board. School board. And what was then a very Democratic South Carolina. Of course, um, since then, South Carolina has been very Republican. Uh, in any case, you then became a lawyer right? Uh, commercial real estate law. Uh -huh. And then you got elected as a conservative Republican to Congress in the 1990s. And um, you say you were a different man then. Still, that was English 1.0, as we call it. That's, <laughs> that's the one that uh, 
uh, uh, see in the rearview mirror and I cringe at a number of things. And then you ran for the Senate in 1998. And something happened to you back then, which you say transformed you in dramatic ways. And you became what you call English 2.0. So why did you change after that Senate race in 1998? Here's how it happened. Um, a rather famous pollster, who I will not name because it's embarrassing to him, I think, that told me on the Tuesday before Tuesday that we were in a dead heat. On Thursday, he said we were seven points up. On Tuesday, we lost by, what, I think, by four points or five points to Senator Hollings. Democrat. A Democrat from South Carolina, 32-year incumbent. Um, I lost that race. Um, and so it was a crushing defeat. We really expected to win. And so um, I spent about three years in real difficulty, um, three years of real soul-searching and difficulty. Uh, my wife ran into our family doctor at the grocery store during that time. And uh, he asked, well, how's Bob doing? And my wife, who's pretty cautious, you know, politically, was real candid with him. She said, well, to tell you the truth, Tom, awful. He's doing awful. <laughs> he said, uh, make up, get him to make an appointment. So I went to see him. Ended the appointment. He said, I think some people would put you on medicine. I think you may be clinically depressed. But... He said, I think for you it's a spiritual matter. You just need to work through this. Hmm. And so, okay, I think it's pretty good advice in my case when he subsequently told my secretary of the law firm not to treat his her bipolar son. I told her to ignore that advice and go get that boy some medicine. Can I interject, please? Uh, when your wife told the doctor, Bob's doing awful, what exactly did awful look like day to day for you? And I, I know this is not pleasant to talk about, but I think for people who have suffered depression or know people who suffer depression, which is many millions of people, um, it's helpful to hear somebody else talk about it. Well, it was um, characterized, I guess, by sort of a lack of purpose. And so um, just, just some really pretty low moments. Um, and it went on, as I said, for three years. You know, I, I remember... Uh, Times of driving home, and I'd be on the four-lane highway beside a uh, tractor-trailer truck, and I'd think, well, I'm surely not going to drive underneath there. But if uh, his or her tire blew out right now and they came over here, it wouldn't bother me at all. Um, you know, it was... So, so not suicidal, but sort of, hey, I, I could be, okay, dying right now. Yeah, it's just sort of feeling like it was all over. Wow. Uh there, it all came to a head for me in what we affectionately call in the family the teeth-banging experience. Um, I was uh, up in the middle of the night um, uh, going to the bathroom, standing there thinking, I don't feel too well. Had time to think it one more time. Woke up on the floor. Blood was everywhere. Holy And my. I had uh, passed out wow. and smashed my six front teeth oh, on God. the bathroom counter on the way down. Was this like a panic attack? No, yeah. it was a dehydration experience, it turns out, mm. um, which is not what any of us thought. Um, the day before, we'd, I'd been with our kids down a river with some other people in, in a canoe, and we'd gone over a particularly large rapid. 
uh, we, we turned over, and uh, my daughter and I came out of the canoe, and I had hit myself and both hips on the way out. So the night, as I was getting in bed that night, I said to my wife, I'm all banged up. So the, the first thing we thought about on the floor with the blood everywhere was heart attack, aneurysm, blood clot. And that's what they were thinking at the hospital. Two hospitals, in fact, had transferred to the second one. And uh, after a CAT scan, they said, you're dehydrated. Um, and uh, so the, the day before, in that uh, canoe ride, eight hours, not a drop to drink, hey. April 30th, uh, 2001, uh, and uh, I remember that date. You can understand why you would remember the date. <laughs> and so, so it's uh, um, here's advice to all your listeners: eight hours with not a drop to drink is a really bad idea. Drink lots of water. <laughs> and so, so uh, as a, interesting enough, as I was processing on the floor my health condition, I was also processing a memory of a sermon from our. A favorite uh, pastor at the time, a very conservative church. I remember this sermon about Israel basically calling God to appear at the bar of justice. And so this sort of still small voice, no audible voices, but just this still small voice within me says, what are you going to do now? And uh, for me, it's like this moment of realizing grace because in, in the aftermath of that, the recovery, which was quite, you know, it took, it took a while. Uh, to give you an idea of that recovery, before I tell you the, the impact of it, it's just like um, w w at the emergency room, they said, you know, doctor had not much bedside manner. He said, listen, your body is at its peak at 30. Every decade thereafter, it's downhill. Drink more water, take better care of yourself. I, I was maybe 40 at the time, I guess. No, no, 42 or 3. But I said, what, what about the teeth, which were all up in my head, my six front teeth up in my head? He says, oh, make an appointment with your dentist in the next couple of days. Well, I knew that couldn't be right. Uh, note to your re readers, make an appointment immediately with your dentist. They can do things. And so, so we went to the dentist. He canceled his morning and pulled my teeth down out of my head with my wife sitting in the chair saying, a little bit lower on that one. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Dale, a little, little bit up on that one a little bit. And so... This is so disgusting. <laughs> he, he set them in something yeah. like jello, and then splinted them, spent time braces. Now we've done implants 10 years later. So anyway... But Bob, you, but you, were you, you literally were lying on the floor and thinking about the sermon and thinking about God. Yeah, because it was, it's just amazing how, you know, we're created to do, uh, process a whole lot of things at once. And so one side of my brain is processing my health condition, which really was heart attack, aneurysm, blood clot. And the other side was like, yeah, so what are you going to do? And in the aftermath, what I came to understand is, you know, uh, Anglis, from up here, from God's perspective, the difference between you and Senator Hollings, who you presume to be the most arrogant person in the world, is, you know, if you could hold up two fingers very close <laughs> together, you know, it's not much difference. And I, I just want to add that Senator Fritz Hollings, of course, the guy who beat you, was a super conservative Democrat. He served in the Senate for decades. You clearly did not think much of him. So that's how I felt God t saying to me, now, which do you want to talk about? 
relative justice between you and Hollings, which is just inches, or the chasm between you and Hollings and my righteousness. Now, which one do you want to talk about? Relative justice or grace? Uh, grace. All right, then. Well, that's going to change everything about you and everything about your perspective, and especially uh, also your perspective on politics. It, it changes it because it makes it um, this incredible free gift of love. So that gift of grace, um, then it makes you want to act more that way with other people, with love. It's just really a remarkable kind of thing. Because in one point, though, the thing that's embarrassing to me in looking in the rearview mirror is all my sanctimony. You know, there was a recent guy in public life who I shouldn't name here, who I consider like a perfect tin in sanctimony. You're so discreet. <laughs> yeah, I think you can guess. <laughs> in, re- in, re- in withholding the name. <laughs> I, I, I guess you can guess. I think you can guess who that was. Are you talking about Trump? <laughs> it was most certainly not Trump, but it's somebody very close to Trump. Yeah. Um, and so. <laughs> Ted Cruz. No, no, no. It's. Uh, Tell yeah. us. Who? Yeah, okay. Don't torture us. So, so it's. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I could ever hold a candle to Mike Pence uh, when it comes to sanctimony. Um, oh. <laughs> um, so, but I was no. pretty sanctimonious uh, in 1.0. <laughs> not quite as, I wasn't a perfect 10 on Mike's scale, but um, so in retrospect, just seeing all that sanctimony is embarrassing to me because now after the teeth banging, I went back to Congress with the understanding that I was no uh, no better than anybody else in the political process. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. In 1.0, I had believed that I was pure as a driven snow. Everybody else in the political process was pretty much swine. And let me just add for our listeners that six years after that terrible Senate defeat, Bob ran again for the House of Representatives, and this time he won again. And so I went back with a very different view, which is, gee, uh, everybody's just trying to make their way in life, and we're all dependent on grace, and uh, that's that's the story. And so it, uh, it made for a very different approach uh, in 2.0. And before we go on, Bob, um, here's an ad from one of your old campaigns. Um, and, and I want to play it because it suggests that you were still back then, in around 2010, very much a conservative Republican in many ways. Bob Inglis votes for us when he votes to protect the Second Amendment. And when he votes to strengthen our immigration laws. And when he voted against the stimulus. And when he votes for the most conservative budgets, year was after there a, year. Was there an issue in 2.0 that was a kind of pivot point for you? Did, did you depart from the Republican playbook on uh, I mean, I know about, we, we we're going to hear a lot about your climate change views, but I, I'm just wondering, was, was that it? Or were, were there other issues that, that were very important in uh, moving you to a different place? Yeah, there, there were other issues, um, but probably the most visible one became uh, gay marriage, which for me became something that I could no longer oppose or be uh, what I was before, which is somebody saying that it's just wrong or something. I, I just came to a very different view on that. And so... Why? How, how did you come to that view? That, that uh, really with the help of a, of a friend that um, told me about his life, and, and after many terrible times of me 
comparing him to an alcoholic. Um, you mean and, he was gay? Yeah. Um, he finally got through to me that, no, listen, stop. Why do you call me that? It's just the way that I'm, I am. So that helped me to uh, understand that. And um, so that was a departure from the norm. And then, of course, the climate it was a big departure from the norm, what, what became the orthodoxy of the Republican Party. And, and of course, my path to clean energy and uh, talking about the energy transformation and headed toward climate action was what uh, was causing a lot of angst, too, in the, in the Republican base at that time. And let's remind our listeners that our guest today is Bob Inglis. He served six terms as a Republican congressman from one of the most conservative districts in the country. And now he denounces the Republican Party and wants to transform it. I, I just wanted to uh, connect some dots here because we were talking about religious faith earlier. Uh, we're now talking about issues, mainly gay marriage and climate change. And there's a question that's been you know, kind of bothering me for a long time. I mean, I'm not a religious person, I'll tell you, but I did grow up in the Methodist church and uh, I went to Sunday school faithfully because I was made to. And I'm, I've been wondering for a long time, and Congressman, maybe you can shed some light on this, why it is that if you believe Genesis, in Genesis, that God created the heaven and the earth, why it is that it's okay for humankind to sully God's creation by polluting the earth, by uh, doing all the things that we do that are clearly damaging that creation. And, and it doesn't compute for me. I don't understand why there is a very strong anti-climate change attitude among many evangelical Christians, and not just evangelical Christians, many Christians who are very very devout uh, and sincere in their beliefs, but somehow they don't put these two things together. Can you, can you explain it? Or <laughs> I don't, I don't understand it. It seems to me that Christians who are, are strongly, strong religious believers of all people would be the most protective of the earth as God's creation. Yes, uh, well, certainly should be. That's the case, I believe. Um, but you're right that it isn't the case. Um, and so why is that? I think I think it's a uh, misunderstanding and some pressure that they're feeling. Uh, so the misunderstanding is the the role of humankind in uh, exercising dominion. You know, in, in Genesis chapter one, it says that God created humankind and gave them dominion over the earth. And so some people interpret that to mean that you can rape and pillage the earth. And therefore, that causes people like me to try to say, well, no, wait, let's look at the word. Maybe the dominion is a different word. No, no. My preference, so, is not to do that so much word study, but rather say, okay, let's say it is dominion. Hmm. Let's say it is. It's literally true that we're given dominion over the earth. Okay, then what should that dominion look like? Well, how about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity? What did his dominion look like? Well, let's see. The night before he's crucified, he's washing his disciples' feet, the job of the lowest slave in the house. That's what dominion looks like. So if you're going to exercise dominion over the earth and you're a Christian, you should do it the way that Jesus exercised dominion, which is as a servant. So we are the stewards and servants of creation. We are the people who are supposed to tend it. 
not destroy it, not rape it and pillage it. So that's a misunderstanding. And then the place that we've been pushed into it, I think, is some on the left, and particularly those that want to push, you know, sort of a view of godless evolution. You know, in other words, there's no no creator back there anywhere. It's not that he uses the process of evolution. It's just that he there is no such thing as a god back at that. Um, if people who are evangelistic in that perspective, and really they are evangelistic in it. You must come forward and subscribe to this view. Um, and if you don't, you know, you're somehow a troglodyte. So that sets up this contest between faith and science hmm. that really should not exist. No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. As, as a Christian, particularly, I think it should not exist because in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that what may be known about God is clear from the creation itself. And so science is just the search for his fingerprints. So there shouldn't be any contest between faith and science. It should be just a celebration of discovering his fingerprints. And then, of course, if I had to add one other thing, is just sort of this, the reaction to the idea that Humans are sovereign over our destiny, which really is manifestly false. I mean, even on the face of it, because none of us can determine the length of our lives. I mean, we, we, we all are subject to death, so there's no, there's no possibility philosophically we could be autonomous. But this idea that we're somehow the masters of our own fate leaves no place for a sovereign God. And if you're a biblical believer, you believe in a sovereign God. And specifically, that comes up in climate change, by the way, but that's another topic. I'd like to get back to climate change, please. And, and, and Bob, you know, hearing you talk about religion and the Bible, and I'm not kidding in any way whatsoever, it makes me feel sad for what I did not get when I went to Sunday school as a kid, because it's, it's really rich and fascinating. But I do want to get back to politics and climate change, because before you went to the transformation, I mean, you would give speeches, right? As a congressman in South Carolina, you would give speeches attacking people who said, oh, climate change is going to, you know, destroy the world. Didn't you give those zing zinger lines and speeches? Oh, yeah. Always, always with Al, Al Gore being the butt of the joke. Yeah. All about criticizing Al Gore. And for young people who uh, don't know all their history, Al Gore was the Democratic vice president who a lot of people on the right think of as the Satan, um, liberal, elitist, right, Yeah, who puts them down. So, Bob, you, you've told a few of the examples of how you transformed your thinking about climate change. You went to uh, Australia and you saw the Great Barrier Reef uh, dying, right, from bleaching, from the oceans getting warm. You went to Antarctica I think with the House Science Committee, is that right? Correct, yeah. And, and you saw data showing that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is way, way higher than ever in recorded history. And you've told about how one of your children came to you and had a conversation and said, Dad, you got to get on board with climate change. I'm wondering, which of those made the biggest emotional impact on you or, or the impact that you really still carry with you? And, and, and why did you have to go to Antarctica and go to the Great Barrier Reef to get the message. I mean, the, the science was there. I mean, it was, was no mystery to most people. And most people don't get to go there. So if we rely on personal encounters like that, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. So, I mean, I, I, 
You know, I've, I've read your statements on this too, and I, I kind of, they have me scratching my head a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think the unifying theme is actually love in these. Uh, that's what that's what moved me. Love. Um, so is first the love of my son and his four sisters, his mother, my wife. Um, you know that. What Robert was saying to me, I think, was, Dad, I love you, and you can be better than you were before, so if this is going to be English 2.0, let's make the new and improved version. So that's where it starts. Um, and then the, the science in Antarctica has a, has a human element to it as well, which is uh, a master teacher there named Donald Manahan, University of Southern California biologist. Oh, I did a story about him. Oh, you have? Great. Wonderful guy. Irish. Wonderful Irish scientist. Yeah. So while we were in Antarctica, he needed to call his mother. And uh, the fact that he needed to go call his mother made me more able to hear his science. Really? Because he, he obviously loved his mom. Hmm. Wow. And he had an aging and ailing mother at the time, and I had an aging and ailing mother at the time. He was a human being, huh? And um, it's sort of difficult to go find a satellite phone and figure out how to call his mother, who's actually a famous Irish actress. So that continued the theme of love. And then it culminated with uh, meeting Scott Heron, the Australian climate scientist at the Great Barrier Reef, snorkeling with him and realizing that he was worshiping God and what he was showing me and without any words preached the gospel the way that St. Francis of Assisi said to do it, which was preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. And so later when we had a chance to talk, he told me about the conservation changes he was making in his life to love God and love people. I decided right then and there to do something about climate change. Wow, so both on gay marriage and climate change, the human personal encounter was pivotal for you, was was really decisive. Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, it's just uh, because, you know, ultimately we get to the place where we realize we're dealing with other humans who, other people that we uh, have the opportunity to love and care for and to be loved by. That's fascinating. And so... The narrative running through is a narrative of love, really. So if Al Gore or somebody like him, a big advocate for fighting climate change, had sat down with you and gone hiking with you, you know, broken bread with you literally and bonded with you, maybe you would have changed your feelings about climate change and other issues much earlier. I think so. Yeah, I think that's the way we all are, right? I mean, if we just, we, we, we establish some other that we want to make worse than us or our enemy or somehow make us better than they are. And then if we could just figure out how to sit with them, you know, it gets a lot better. You know, I've, I've had this happen on the other side of the fence. I remember, you know, uh, in English 1.0, I really was probably exactly what a black South Carolinian would expect of a white Republican. I showed up at a Martin Luther King Jr. march with uh, khaki pants, white shirt, and a red tie on, you know, um, <laughs> a white Republican looking very white. And I walked up to this woman... And she crossed her arms across her chest, and she said, I don't like you. <laughs> oh, and um, her husband was standing behind her. And she, he's looking embarrassed, like, I can't believe she just said that to him. And so I said to her, I said, 
great. We got a mile and a half to change your mind. Oh, wonderful. Let's walk. <laughs> and so <laughs> we, we walked for a mile and a half. In the subsequent uh, election, uh, Charles and Ann Bobo did a, uh, a coffee for, for my re-election at their house. So we became friends. And who was that? I'm sorry? That's the lady who said, Wait, I, I don't like you. So you did change your mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that, it works. In other words, if we, if we could just get to a place of understanding these others that we establish, we might find out that, no, they're not any other than we are. We're exactly the same as they are. So, so uh, around the same time that you were changing your views on climate change, you you were, you also opposed the Iraq War troop surge in two thousand seven, which Republicans pretty much all supported. You supported Obama's economic rescue plan, which pretty much every Republican denounced. You were one of a handful of Republicans who denounced a fellow Republican in Congress, uh, Joe Wilson, that was his name, right? Who had, during uh, Obama's joint session to Congress, Joe Wilson yelled out very audibly for all of us watching on television, you lie, and, and you denounced him. So when you ran again for your last term in 2010, what happened? Yeah, the only the only correction to that list of uh, things is that uh, you, you probably meant the uh, George Bush's rescue of the banks, oh, 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 um, the uh, uh, which can never you. be forgiven by the Tea Party. Um, may, may, may I point out that, that Bob Inglis is a Republican to whom facts matter. That's so. That's so. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> a rare breed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you just gave my list of sins against the Republican orthodoxy um, that developed during the Tea Party, the launch of the Tea Party. And isn't it, in a way, it's encouraging, though, isn't it? I mean, in that list of sins, you find some things that really sound strange now, like, oh, how dare you oppose our president who wants to do the surge in Iraq? Well, that's what it was then, but then a guy named Donald Trump got elected and he trashed the whole effort in Iraq about once a month. The same people cheered for him. <laughs> the same people turned around and cheered Donald Trump, who says, oh, who cares about Iraq? Yeah, and then the, the rescue of the banks, that, that looks like chump change compared to the coronavirus uh, rescues, doesn't it? I mean, it's just absolute chump change. So orthodoxies change, and maybe that's oddly encouraging because it could tell us that we could get out of this bad spot we're in right now. So 2010, you get a primary challenger who's far more conservative than you, especially the 2.0 English version. So what happened? You lost, not just lost, you were crushed. Well, actually, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm not sure that, again, a fact checker, I'm not sure he's actually more conservative than me. Um, because, for example... Uh, what's, his, what's his name? This what is name? Uh, Trey Gowdy. Oh, of course, yeah. Trey and I were friends, uh, practiced law together for a brief time uh, in the same law firm. I had lunch with him in '09. I uh, confessed all my sins, all the ones you just read, Annie. Um, I, I confessed all those sins to my friend Trey Gowdy. At the end of the lunch, unrequested, he says to me, I'm a Bob Inglis kind of guy. I'm with you. Uh, three months later, he's running against me. So 
<laughs> I don't know what, what happened in those three months. But uh, So I'm not sure he's actually more conservative than me. Uh, but he did, uh, I, I, will, I will say that he surely did become, uh, I guess, a full-throated <laughs> Trumper. So, um, and, but I, I don't define that as conservative, actually. I, I define that as, as populist nationalism. It's not conservatism. Can you define your Republican beliefs? What are they? Uh, as, as to where it is now... I think that what a conservative is, which is what generally Republicans are, is people who believe in individual freedom and responsibility and who see free enterprise, particularly accountable free enterprise, as a particularly powerful force in achieving good things. I describe myself as a Jack Kemp Republican. And of course, he was a congressman from... New York. And uh, Jack Kemp, you know, was this guy who I think believed that the test of conservatism is that it works for everyone. Jack Kemp uh, really was the main voice in my coming along of Republicans reaching out to uh, black Americans uh, and uh, Latinx Americans because, you know, the test of conservatism is it works for everyone. If it's a philosophy that works only for some at the top, it's really pretty lousy philosophy. But if it truly uh, embraces equal opportunity, not equal outcomes, but equal opportunity, then I think it's a, uh, a morally uh, good philosophy. There uh, sounds like actually there's more overlap between that kind of conservatism and liberalism than most people would uh, tend to acknowledge. Uh, certainly the individual freedom and the individual responsibility and, you know, actually the role of private enterprise. I mean, I consider myself a liberal, but I do value private enterprise. It, there does, there need to be some controls, regulations, because it can go wild and hurt people. But um, I bet you and I could sit down and write bills together if you were still in Congress and I had any inclination to to being there, which I don't, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, so, so what you're, what, what I'm hearing from you actually is a ground that you're uh, describing a kind of a, a landscape, a political landscape that could be an area of real cooperation uh, between the two parties. If the Republican party were still the way it used to be, uh, do you see it that way too? Yeah, I think that, um, what happened is that we've all now embraced identity politics. And that is a terrible place to be. I must say that I think it started with the Democratic Party figuring out that, listen, if you're black or gay or a woman, you're ours. You belong to us. Then came my party that outdid the teacher and became the student that does it better than the teacher ever thought of doing identity politics. Because now, if you're white, male, evangelical, we by golly own you. Stock, lock, stock, and barrel. You are ours. <laughs> and when you get in that spot where it's about identity, there's no room to talk about policy. It's just talking about saving America from the other side, these other people that want to destroy the country. You can't compromise with that other people because to do so is to betray your tribe. So if you if you go into identity politics, you end up in a a blood sport situation where you must just behead the other side. You can't work with them. 
I want to get back to 2010 for a moment, because back then you and your former friend and fellow Republican were fighting each other in the primary. And I want to play a news story about you from that campaign, because it shows a lot of what you're talking about, that, that voters were upset with you for not being Republican enough. This is from WYFF News 4 in Greenville, South Carolina, January 2010. Race election. And to win that race, he will have to fight harder than in years past, trying to explain to Republicans why he sometimes votes with Democrats. News Force Gordon Dill reports on this tonight. This is no ordinary breakfast. It's a political fundraiser for Congressman Bob Inglis. That plate of bacon and eggs cost everyone here 250 bucks. And while they're all having coffee, Inglis was making the same kind of remarks that have gotten him in some Tea Party-style opposition. In this case, saying that under the Republican majority in Congress, representatives like him essentially saw key committee assignments sold off for party contributions. If you want to be on appropriations, energy and commerce or ways and means, that's the number. That's the dollar amount that you've got to give to the National Republican Congressional Committee. And that is not out of character for Inglis, the conservative Republican who has often crossed paths with his own party. It's much value for me to go there and, uh, and, and just be driven by the current political winds. I think that leaders are called on to say, well, in any case, you lost, he, he won like 70-something percent of the vote, right, in the primary? You're cutting him short. It's 71% of the vote he got. <laughs> Sorry. Th- thanks for the fact-checking <laughs> again. And you went into another period of soul-searching, and you had to figure out, what am I going to do now? Yeah, it was shorter than the other one, uh, because, in fact, my wife said to me, listen, we're not doing that again. <laughs> okay? <laughs> we can't do that again. Uh uh, too, too, too late to do that. You can't do that. You can't spend another three years like that. I, I was totally in agreement that, no, no, we're not going to do that again. Um, and so, thankfully, a foundation came to me and said, you know, English, you're unusual. You're an actual conservative, um, you know, 93 American Conservative Union rating, 100% Christian Coalition, 100% National Right to Life, A with the NRA, zero with the Americans for Democratic Action, the liberal group, and... 23 by some mistake with the AFL-CIO, the labor union, I was really hoping for a zero. So they, they said, you know, uh, an actual conservative who says climate change is real, will you speak and write for the proposition? And so, uh, thankfully, that's what I've been able to do ever since, except <laughs> I should change that. I wish I had finished by now. I wish this were over. I wish we had accomplished it. But um, it, it turned out to be a, a twist in the road that I'd didn't anticipate, but I got to sing that uh, Green Day song, you know, the one about uh, mm-hmm. fate uh, uh, comes another twist in the road, another fork in the road. Can you sing it? Oh, I, maybe I could, you know, I'm not sure. I, you know, it's a, it's a great song, Green Day, about I uh, hope you have the time of your life. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a great song. And it's sort of what I'm doing now is, um, you know, what you can, uh, most you can hope for out of a career is something big enough to be about. And uh, solving climate change is surely big enough to be about. So it's not the path I would have chosen, but I'm, uh, I'm thankful to be on it. Another turning point, a fork stuck in the road. Time grabs you by the rest, directs you where to go. So make the best of this test and don't ask why. It's not a question, but a lesson learned in time. It's something unpredictable, but in the end is right. 
I hope you had the time of your life. Well, on that note, we're going to break for now, but please stay tuned for our next episode because Bob Inglis is going to give us all a lesson. Um, how do we talk with our cousins or our aunts or our neighbors or our spouses who, who still insist that all the warnings about climate change are nonsense? And Dave, what else are we going to talk about? And how do you do it? How do you do it respectfully, without uh, seeming arrogant or dogmatic? Which I think is something that really turns people off when you try to to, to persuade them. I, I once uh, heard a guy recall that his father used to say, you can't kick a man toward you. Plus, Bob, <laughs> we're going to ask you to tell us how you and other Republicans are working to transform the Republican Party, to wrest it away from Donald Trump, or maybe even form a new party. So everybody, please come back next episode. And you won't ask me to sing the Green Day song, will you? I might. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> no, 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 you don't want me to sing. And that's it for this episode of Two Reporters. You can hear us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, Stitcher, and other popular podcast sites. And you can listen on our website, tworeporters.org or tworeporters.net. Plus, we have tons of other information there. Please check it out. I'm David Shipler. And I'm Daniel Zwerdling. Please join us again soon for another episode of Two Reporters. Bye-bye.